means momentary, temporary letting go of attachment. The mind experiences freedom from attachment or emptiness, but it's temporary. So the word Tanajan uses Tatanga Vimuti. Vimuti means the liberated mind. Tatanga is like temporary or momentary, as he mentioned earlier today. And you know, it comes from he said when the mind when you're practicing meditation your mind gathers in samadhi. There's enough con- continuous mindfulness, the mind becomes still in samadhi and then contemplates and lets go of all attachment at that time. Goes to a state of em- emptiness, but it's not sustained, so it comes back as if comes back from that to normal ways of thinking and reacting to things. So it's not true nibbana in that sense, permanent nibbana, but it's a state of emptiness that is, is like a little nibbana. Nibbana just um, exists within each individual's mind. It's a state of mind which would contain individual's mind, or is it something out there that the mind taps into separately? It comes from within the mind itself. It's a difficult thing to describe successfully in words because words tend to limit the concept and, and define it in ways that is not correct. But nevertheless, we still have to use language in words. So um, there is a s- sort of a vague relationship that they do even talk about. Nibbana, a bit sometimes like it's, it's it's a state that exists or it's a realm when the, the practitioner has freed their mind through insight of all of all attachments, the mind becomes empty of attachment. So it's empty of everything in the sense it doesn't uh, grasp onto anything, body, physical or mental. So then it becomes as if without limit, without boundaries, without anything that it's sort of um, fixed on, that's Nibbana. So where you can't really say, well, it's a place, you know, it's there, it's there, because the whole thing is it's without bounds, without limits, it's, there's nothing you can tie it down with. But there is something. <laughs> uh, so it's a kind of a tricky concept to describe and sort of understand just with words. Nevertheless, you know, that's what we have to do. So if all human beings die, would nirvana still exist, or would it disappear when it's in Wouldn't wouldn't disappear. Still be there. One factor that uh, you didn't bring in there is that even if all the human beings were for some reason to disappear, there are the Buddhist cosmology talks about these other realms of existence, so what we call lower realms, realms where beings are suffering in different states, ghost realms, hell realms. Uh, these are beings that you wouldn't normally see with the naked eye, they have subtle bodies, 
and then there's the higher, what we call higher realms, of heaven realms, uh, realms of the gods, and so on. And so, even if all the human beings are gone, there'll still be some beings in these realms. One thing I forgot to mention earlier is one way to describe Nibbana is Dhamma Dhatu, Thai Dhamma Ta. Dhamma Dhatu, Dhamma means that which is, and Dhatu means like an element. There's an element in the sense it's something that just exists or just <coughs> is. So that's all you can really say about it. It is, it is, it's that which is. The mind goes to that which is or experiences that which is. So we can't just say it's space of mind. You're right. You could say Nibbana is there already. It's, it's already there. We don't see it. We don't experience it. But it's there. As you practice, through the development of wisdom, you're seeing delusion, you're seeing the suffering of attachment and the delusion of attachment. And little by little your mind is freeing itself from attachment because you know this is this is the cause of suffering and, and this is delusion. So those that process of little by little freeing one's mind of attachment brings the mind to more and more of an experience of emptiness of delusion, emptiness of self. So closer to realizing nibbana, experiencing nibbana. So it's as if the mind is little by little going towards emptiness where it's opening up and recognizing or realizing nibbana for what it is. And when that process is complete, well then the mind knows, oh, this is nibbana. It was there all, all the time. You know, it's, it's a truth that exists all the time, but normally we don't realize it. We, don't, we haven't realized it. We haven't seen it. That's almost like a, a state that was there before the universe existed. It's just a total state of emptiness. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is getting tricky now. <laughs> if, if you're going to talk about it in terms of a like something with a physical boundary or a boundary, a border, a limit, we could say, you know, just for the purpose of description, we can say, well, Nibbana is the most refined, limitless that there is. Coming step down from that is what we call the Brahma realms, the realms of those who, um, who have developed deep states of jhana, of samadhi, when they die they're reborn in Brahma realms. They're considered heaven realms, the most refined, subtle realms where one experiences the most subtle peace and happiness but it's, they're still finite realms, one dies from those realms and is reborn again. But it's a step down from Nibbana. A step down from that is the more uh, material heaven realms, ordinary heaven realms we talk about. step down from that is the human realm. And you know, the human realm encompasses the entire, what we call the universe, that scientists, astronomers talk about, planets, stars, all of that. We would call that the human realm. So the, the heaven realms, Brahma realms, are more refined, more subtle, higher than that. Nibbana, beyond that even. So, you know, yeah, for, for descriptive purposes, you could say like that. It's probably a question 
but could an arahant decide to uh, come back into a lower realm? But once they reach that nirvana, how they come back? Can't. There's no more birth. There's no more returning to the world or any any of these other realms of existence. There's no more of that. Time spans, the statistics of it, the concept of it all is so <coughs> extreme, so expansive that you know, it really gets to the point where you can't really know and go that far into the future. You know, when the point comes when everyone will be enlightened, um, just the distance between one Buddha to the next in time span and what's gone between them you know, is already fantastic, huge amounts of time. And then the comparison is one Buddha, the kind of effect on enlightening beings is as a sort of a comparison. It's like you compare the horns of a cow, the two, with all the hairs on its back, which is hundreds of thousands or millions. One Buddha is like enlightening that amount of beings, the two horns, and there's all these other beings, the hairs on the back that are still unenlightened, are still there. The next Buddha comes along and two more horns. Yeah, so that it's the time span, the whole sort of steps towards everyone becoming enlightened. You, know, you can have that wish and you can work towards it. It's going to be a long, long, long time. Already at the present, the number of beings who have become Buddhas in the past, if you just go back indefinitely on and on and on into history, into time, is more than all the grains of sand in the Ganges River. You think how many countless innumerable grains of sand there must be on the banks of the river in the river. More than that. <laughs> so, rather than going expanding past, future, and all the present moment, practicing the here and now to achieve enlightenment here and now because you know all these other things are just beyond concept. Everyone's <laughs> gone quiet. Is that the uh, have we exhausted the <laughs> deepest depths of uh, doubt and uncertainty now? The question was uh, asking Tanajan to explain a little bit more about the concept of watching the body, watching the mind, because often you hear teachers talking about practices, watching the body and watching the mind. Uh, some people teach just watching the body, some just watch the mind. And Jan was explaining, well, of course one is learning to or know or watch or know, get to know the body, get to know the mind, both of them. but the obvious reality is that the mind is something very subtle, very fast, the movement, the changes of the mind, the subtleties of the mind, because you can't see it, it's something you have to know with the mind itself. And so, practical reality is, you know, it's quite difficult to just watch the mind from moment to moment in your normal practice. So then, many practitioners will begin and base their practice around 
the body, which is coarser, more obvious to focus awareness on, to get to know or to watch. Um, particularly when one still has what is a sensual desire based around the body, the senses and the feelings of the body and what we you might call delighting or taking pleasure in this body is uh, a very common experience for most people. We, we, we have a lot of attachment to the pleasures that come through the body so that's a good place to start in your Dhamma practice is to observe the body and see how we are attached to always seeking pleasure through the senses and through the body and take that as your starting point to contemplate to see say, the, the, uh, the opposite of the, the unattractive side of the body the unpleasant side of the body and so on to counter that delusion, counter that attachment but it's not wrong to also observe the mind as well but you, as you train yourself to observe the mind you'll see or it's difficult, it's fast one to just see, say, the arising and passing away of mental phenomena, say a thought rising, passing away, moments of consciousness is very, very refined and subtle practice. One can't just step into that practice, one has to train to the point when one can do that. So one uses the body first. And they say one who has already achieved some insight, say a basic level of insight, they, then they can focus on the mind directly and do that practice better or more successfully. But most people, as they begin practice, haven't achieved that level of insight, perhaps. They need to work a lot with the body. And even the body, when we say contemplate the body, it's not that you can spend your whole day walking around necessarily and doing your business and different things and always have uh, a recollection, say, of the unattractive nature of the body, what we call the supakamatana, where you're just focusing on all the, the unattractive physical aspects of this body uh, to just do that and to do it often and also, say continuously through a day already that's quite difficult as well so contemplation of the body begins right at the most basic courses level is becoming aware of your posture sitting, standing, lying down, walking becoming aware of your posture becoming aware of the actions, the movements of your body and then bringing it in to investigate the body on a more deeper level to see it its component parts to see the uh, unattractive side and so on what works from the coarse through to the refined and, and that's just the practical reality for most people in their practice they have to do it this way it's just natural for <coughs> him, say, having practiced and developed knowledge, understanding of the path, insight into the path uh, for himself, his own practice. It's just natural that the mind is accompanied by a sense of metta, goodwill, compassion for other beings. And so when there's an appropriate occasion, then he can share his knowledge for their benefit. If the people are interested, people with faith come forward, monks or lay people, then he can share his knowledge. Um, that's just the way the mind is. If there's no need for that, you know, if he's at the monastery, it's not like he's walking around thinking, what can I teach the people? It's just the mind has actually gone to a state of emptiness and peace. But when the need arises, 
the conditions are right, people come forward to looking for teachings, well then he can teach and he can start, uh, the mind starts to think of Dhamma to teach those people. But it's not like it's looking or needing that. It can just go to emptiness if there's no one to teach and the mind can just be peaceful on its own. As far as a duty, you know, having the duty to teach, well, to say that, yeah, that's true, but that whole uh, concept of a duty, well, that's conventional reality, isn't it? That's to say, well, there's a teacher, there's disciples, there's a monastery, there's an abbot, a teacher. You know, these are the conventions of the world, and obviously that's part of our life as, as human beings. We use these conventions skillfully, we understand them. But that's as far as it goes. You know, the mind itself is, is free from attachment to those conventions. It's not um, bound up in those conventions. It's free and peaceful on its own. But the peaceful mind naturally has metta, has, has, has compassion, kindness, goodwill, and a wish. Uh, if, if there are those beings with, with the need to, to hear the Dhamma, a wish to hear Dhamma, well, the mind, the mind comes forward to bring, bring Dhamma for them. And, the Buddha always said the giving of Dhamma is the highest kind of giving that a human being can perform. It's um, you know, the, the highest, the best kind of giving. And so even then, even though the mind isn't needing that kind of giving, that kind of activity, in the process of giving, especially if one gives a Dhamma talk, one talks on to deeper levels of Dhamma, then in the course of doing that, well, pity and sukha can arise just as a natural result of giving dhamma to higher and higher levels. Pity and sukha can arise. One can have dhamma pity, dhamma joy arising in the giving of the dhamma. And that's quite natural again. It's just a natural result of, of teaching dhamma.